This episode of In Good Company is brought to you by Grind, a cult coffee brand that since opening their first branch in Shoreditch back in 2011, have expanded across London, opening branches all over London that include espresso bars, cocktail bars, and even an international grade recording studio. And now you can enjoy Grind's excellent coffee at home, direct from their state-of-the-art coffee roastery in Bermondsey. Grind's coffee is sourced from across the world at better than fair trade prices, and the entire range, as well as all the packaging it comes in, is either compostable or recyclable, so they're also the more sustainable option as well. If you're looking for that cafe-quality caffeine fix from the comfort of your own home, head to www.grind.co.uk forward slash ingoodcompany now, and if you use the code ingoodcompany at checkout, you'll get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's Coffee Pod, Whole Bean or Ground Coffee subscriptions. Thank you very much to Grind. Hello and welcome to In Good Company, a podcast about culture and ideas hosted by me, Otegi Wagba, in which I have the pleasure of speaking to some of the most exciting and influential cultural voices of the moment. I've got an absolutely brilliant guest lined up for you today, but before we get to that, a little announcement about the show, because this episode is, I'm afraid, the last ever episode of In Good Company. I decided a little while ago that this series of the podcast would be the last, but I wanted to let the season play out before sharing that news with you all. I've spent the past three years focusing on my most recent book, We Need to Talk About Money, and now that that's out in the world, I feel like I really want and need to make a few changes to allow myself a bit more time and a bit more brain space to fully throw myself into new projects and kind of use my creativity in other ways. And part of that involves, unfortunately, bringing a few existing projects to an end. I have absolutely loved making this show ever since I started out doing it as a monthly radio show for NTS Radio. And shout out to NTS for giving me the resources and support I needed to get it off the ground. I've had so many rich and inspiring and thought-provoking conversations. And I've been lucky enough to do that with women whose work I really admire under the guise of making a podcast. I've also been constantly surprised and blown away by the love you guys have shown this scrappy little operation. The fandom has been very real and I'm super, super grateful for that. Hopefully this isn't the last time you'll see me in the podcast space. It's a medium I really enjoy, so I definitely plan to dip my toe back in, in time. If you're looking to fill the in-good-company-shaped hole in your life, I can thoroughly recommend dipping into the archive of 40 or so episodes from the past couple of years. Something I feel really proud of is that so many of the conversations I've had over the years have been really timeless. And so I hope that in the months to come, you do go back and listen or re-listen to them, as I myself will be doing. And of course, you absolutely can and should get a copy of my book, We Need to Talk About Money, which was the basis for this Money Focus series of the show. If you've enjoyed the conversations you've listened to over the past eight weeks, then I can absolutely guarantee that you'll like the book as well which is all about our complex relationships with money as told through my own experiences, but also with a view to what those experiences say more generally about our relationships with money and our positions in society, particularly as that relates to women. So now that that's out of the way, on with the show. I am so pleased to have the writer, host and educator Ashley C. Ford as the final guest on the show. 
I've been a fan of her work for years and I think she's one of the most thoughtful writers around. So I was really excited to get my hands on her memoir, Somebody's Daughter, which was published in early June and became an instant New York Times bestseller. Somebody's Daughter is Ashley's account of a childhood defined by race and poverty and having a father in prison and Ashley's search for a sense of self in the years that follow. It's gut-wrenchingly honest in places, especially when it comes to money or the lack thereof. And in fact, Ashley's someone who has over the years written and spoken very honestly about her earnings and her relationship with money, which is obviously something that I really appreciate. I found this quite a philosophical and big picture conversation, which I loved. And we talked about loads of things. We talked about Ashley's class transition and how having money does or doesn't affect people's worldviews, as well as some of the most pervasive money myths. That talking about it is rude, that those who have a lot of money must have worked hard for it, that being busy is somehow an indicator of virtue. We also talked about navigating money within heterosexual relationships and what it's like when traditional gender roles are flipped and women become the breadwinners and Ashley's own experiences of that. A truly fascinating conversation. And so without further ado, here's Ashley. Ashley, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. I've been following your work for absolutely years and I'm just a generally very big fan. And I've also just finished reading your fantastic memoir, which was published, I think, last week and immediately hit the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations, first of all. Thank you so much. It has been a very, very wild time, but Getting to talk to people like you kind of makes it worth it. Let's be honest. It's good. It's good. I mean, you were working on that memoir for quite a few years, weren't you? I've seen you talk about it and and write about that. Ten years. Ten years, yeah. (laughs) Ten years for sure. Yes, it's been a ride if ever there were one. And ten years is a long time to be working on one thing. And it's interesting because once you're done... People are really impressed that you've been working on something for 10 years. But when you're in like year eight, they're like, come on, what's (laughs) going on? What's the holdup? What could you possibly be doing? So it's nice to have it out and have people understand that like I was doing something, okay, over those 10 years. Exactly, exactly. My question then is, how did you know when you were finished? Like, how did you know that this was the final iteration of the book that you were ready to put out into the world? I finally allowed other people to help me decide it was finished. Okay. (laughs) I don't think I was going to be able to figure that out on my own. Like if it had been up to me, let's be honest, the book wouldn't have come out for 15 years. And that's mostly because, you know, when you're telling your story and also trying to be careful with the stories of other people as you tell your story, it's really, really difficult to trust yourself and to trust that you're doing the right thing, especially when you were raised the way I was. So it was tough to figure out that like, yeah, this is okay. I'm doing the right thing. This is going the right way. Before that, I definitely struggled a lot. And eventually I allowed my editor and agent and friends and family <laughs> convince me that now was the time. I mean, something you just touched on there when you mentioned being careful with other people's stories is kind of the first, you know, question I wanted to ask you because it's such an honest memoir and in places pretty raw and you share a lot of really personal and often quite traumatic stories about yourself and about your family. I know from my experience that often (laughs) there can be a bit of secrecy 
when it comes to black families and kind of putting your business out in the world, so to speak. And I would love to know, A, how you feel personally about putting those stories out into the world, but also how did you broach the issue of this memoir with, you know, in particular your mother and those close to you? Because at times, I mean, it's very honest, but at times the portrayal of certain people in your lives isn't always favourable. Yeah, well, it can't be. (laughs) That if you're going to write about people. And that's what I had to keep in mind the entire time that I was working on this, is that if I'm going to talk about people, it's not going to be all favorable. It's also not going to be all bad. Mm. So I had to figure out if that's the case, if that's what's going on here that I have to write about people and I don't want it to be all good and I don't want it to be all bad, then what are my options? Oh, my options are the same as my goals. Tell the truth. (laughs) Say what really happened. Write about reality. And the reality is that some of the people who loved me the most, I will not say necessarily loved me well, but certainly loved me with a ferocity were people who struggled with things like violence, emotionally, verbally, physically. I saw all of that. And I think that this is something that we do to kids sometimes where we think that the trade-off for being responsible for a child or taking care of a child for the foundation and the beginning of their life is that they do their best to only remember the good things that happened and forget all of the bad. Mm. And that is a terrible burden placed on a child. That would be a terrible burden placed on anyone, let alone someone who has had a limited ability to understand and be a full person, even as they are a full person, how to express themselves as a full person. They haven't had that much time to figure it out. And before they do, we tell them these things that you saw, that you felt, that happened to you, that affected you. It is disrespectful for you to share that pain or to attempt to share that pain. That's how you create a broken person. (laughs) That's how you build in the damage. You seem like a very open person, which in many ways, just kind of given the context of some of what you said and and some of what is in your book, is quite surprising. How did you get to be that way? I think it was just that I wanted to be okay. I watched so much of my family and friends and people who are around me decide to hide in some capacity who they were or how they grew up, or what was happening in their house, or all of those things. And none of those people seemed happier because of it. Mm. In fact, the people who I knew who were happiest were the people, or who seemed happiest, or who seemed to be living the kind of life that I would want to live, which wasn't necessarily, you know, a life that included a bunch of stuff, but definitely a life where, you know, they seemed to be okay on most days. On most days, they seem to be pretty satisfied with their life and like just moving forward and doing things that interested them or that they cared about. And I wanted to be that kind of person. And it didn't seem like the secrets were going to help me be that kind of person. And it also seemed like in a lot of those instances, like, wow, I actually feel like I will lose. (laughs) Like, I will lose myself if... 
I hold on to these secrets as if I am like the gatekeeper between mm. delusion and reality. I don't want that job. <laughs> so yeah, I just didn't want to be a person who hid. It didn't seem like it worked out. And I knew that I was a person who was hiding and I didn't like that about myself. Something you talk about in the book is the reality of growing up without much money. And I'd love to know what sort of financial education you did get growing up like what sort of thing did you learn from your mother and your grandmother about money well the only things I really learned from my mother and grandmother about money was don't give men money (laughs) and also be careful with your credit and that was the extent of both of those conversations like there was no further explaining how to do that when to do that, where to do that, like that was not part of it at all. It was just protect your credit. And I was 15 and I had no idea what that meant. (laughs) And so that was the extent of my education provided by my mother and grandmother. So how did you interpret those bits of wisdom or more broadly speaking, what was your relationship to money like growing up? I was pretty certain. I would say my interpretation of that, I was pretty certain they were wrong, not just because we didn't have any money. So, you know, like, what what do they really know about getting it? That's how I felt. (laughs) Also, I was used to my mom and grandma just saying things that they believed or that they had heard, but weren't necessarily correct. And I knew that they weren't correct because I spent a lot of time in the library (laughs) reading books or talking to other kinds of people. I was really good at getting adults to talk to me. I was outside of my family. I was great at getting adults to talk to me. So if I started asking them about money or something like that, they would be so excited that like a kid for some reason wanted to talk to them about budgeting that they would go in. And it all made sense to me what they were saying. But the thing about budgets that I didn't know then that I know now is that you have to have enough money to budget. You can write out on a list all of the ways you want to spend your money or all of the bills you have. But if you're not making enough to actually cover that amount, and you can't make enough to cover that amount, a budget doesn't really help you. It just lays out how underwater you are. So growing up, I knew we didn't have a lot of money. We grew up in a place where we were surrounded by people who also didn't have a ton of money. Of my friends, the ones that I thought of were rich, were ones who just lived in like a regular neighborhood in like a three or four bedroom house. But if they had a basement or a pool, it was like, okay, you're rich, right? (laughs) Like that's what rich meant to me. Going to a friend's house and them having just like a ton of fresh fruit or like juices and things like that. To me, that was rich. Full pantries, rich. Full freezers, rich. Band-Aids that somehow never ran out. You always had a Band-Aid at your house. Your parents always made sure you had Band-Aids. Rich. You're a rich person. Like, that's what rich meant to me. And I didn't realize that that wasn't rich until I went to college and then encountered a whole other type of money and wealth and rich. And even that didn't touch the surface to when I moved to Brooklyn 
and started <laughs> meeting people who had grown up there. And of course, certain people, <laughs> not all people, but very certain people who I started to encounter and realize like, oh, there's a different kind of rich over here. Like that's just been my life since I was a kid. It's realizing <laughs> how little my mom had to work with and how much she did with it and how precarious our situation really was. Mm. I definitely kind of relate to some of that in that I got a scholarship to like a really fancy private school. So I thought I knew what rich was. And to an extent, I did know what rich was. They were very affluent people. But then I went to Oxford and I was like, wow, people really have money in this world. Like there are kind of different oh, yeah. levels, you know, kind of Sunday times or I guess the equivalent is like kind of Forbes rich list kind of money. Like I was just blown away by it. And I think it definitely seeped into my financial aspirations in a way or my financial expectations, I think, as a teenager and possibly my early 20s. And I'd love to know what your financial aspirations were, say, from kind of your late teens through college and through to you kind of getting your first couple of jobs and moving to Brooklyn. Well, you know, when I graduated high school, my major goal was that I was going to become a public relations maven. I was going to go into public relations and I was just going to kill the game, right? And not only that, but that I was going to make $50,000 a year. And I thought, that's the big time. That's the big time, is if I'm, I'm working in PR and I'm making $50,000 a year. That was my goal. And it was not until I was in college, not even in college, because I changed my major from PR before I started my first classes, <laughs> but... It wasn't until I was there that I realized that not only was $50,000 not going to be the amount of money that changed my life as a person financially or otherwise, but it also kind of made me scared of wanting to make money. I started being around a lot more people whose main goal or focus was to eventually make a lot of money. That's why a lot of people come to college, you know, like is because they're like, I'm going to get this degree so that I can get this kind of job so that I can make this kind of money. At least where I'm from and the time that I graduated, which was 2005, that was the reason that everybody gave you why you had to go to college. The only person who didn't tell me that money was why I was going to college was my boyfriend who was very much like, no, you go to college to learn and you go to figure out your passion and express yourself in that way. And I was like, yeah, uh, no, I think everybody's going to college because they want to make more money. And once I was around that, I realized that the ways that the world asks you to compromise yourself in some cases mm. or give yourself over to the money-making machine so that you can reach that goal as quickly and as much as possible. And the truth of the matter is, if you do reach that goal quickly and as much as possible, everybody treats you like there's nothing else you could do to be more successful. Like, wow, you make this amount of money. You live in this kind of house. You drive this kind of car. You're the most successful person I know. And then I was spending time with those people and I was like, A, they don't seem very happy to me. Yeah. <laughs> and B, they're not fun. In a lot of cases, 
the people who were just chasing the money. I was like, if this is success, I have no interest. Then I started to have less interest. Honestly, it's like success became something that almost scared me because it was like, what if I become like them? What if I make the money? What if I have the success? What if I meet the goal? And then either I become like them or those are the only people I have to hang out with. That's terrifying. So, you know, it went from wanting that $50,000 to then just being kind of scared of money for a long time. But the thing is, you do now make a fair bit of money. And I I say this, I listened to the interview you did on the Long Form podcast at the end of last year, which which I loved. And you shared how much money you'd made in the year before, which, you know, was in the six figures. You do make a lot of money. So (laughs) I'd love to understand, you know, how your approach to money has changed as you've kind of, I guess, transitioned class in a way and as you've started making more money because you sound like back then there was an element of you that was frightened about how making a lot of money might change you as a person and now that you started making those sorts of sums like you're way above 50,000 you're way above 100,000 so yes I am how have you navigated that with a lot of therapy Mm -hmm. and as I have developed more trust in myself my fear of losing myself all the time came from the fact that You know, as a kid, I very often had to like shut down or clam up or isolate in order to be safe. And I wasn't able to be who I was or express who I was in my home. And that was really, really hard for me, um, traumatic. And it has caused the thing where I'm always scared that someone's going to try to take me away from myself or some element of the world or of life is going to try to take me away from myself. Even in my marriage, my husband is the best thing that's ever happened to me in my life. (laughs) And there were times when I was like, but what if being like in a committed relationship is keeping me from like having myself. And I had to learn that like, not only was that not true, I was with somebody who loved and adored me so much that they were constantly trying to find ways to give me back to myself and also to encourage me to have all of myself and be all of myself. And it's like, oh, okay. So it doesn't have to be this way just because I'm scared that it could be that way. That's like where I had to get to with money is sort of realizing that like, oh, money just makes you more of who you already are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So when I met like insecure assholes who were terrified of losing their money to the point that like everything around them became something that was trying to take money away from them in their minds, they were already like that before they had money. Money just made them more of that person. And I can trust myself to hold on to myself, even as I have money, even as I get paid more, because who I am has not changed. How I think about the world in terms of money, it's like, yeah, there's more context, because when you have more money, more things you can do money with, you start to see how people with more money are treated differently (laughs) than people who don't have it. But even in that, it's like, but I don't have to treat people that way. And not only that, but I can make sure that if I ever see or notice somebody being treated that way, then my money, because it impresses the like perpetrator in this situation, 
I can wield it like a weapon. And that's a different kind of power. And all power comes with responsibility. So just thinking of it that way, honoring the responsibility that comes with having a certain amount of money and remaining myself, trusting myself to remain myself. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I know how a person should be treated. And having money doesn't alter any of those realities for me. Can we talk about scarcity mindsets? Yes, because absolutely. <laughs> there was an anecdote in your memoir that really jumped out at me, which was when you were at college. And I think it was your kind of like the college canteen had these bottles of iced tea in your favorite flavor. And you essentially kind of got excited, but also worried that they'd like sell out. And so you kind of kept buying them and essentially were hoarding this iced tea in your own personal fridge. I don't know, you might even have said it within the context of your book, I can't remember, but just kind of from the way I interpreted it, that seemed to me like a kind of classic scarcity mindset that comes from someone growing up without a lot of money. And A, I'm curious as to whether you'd agree with that, and B, again, I'm curious as to now that you do make a lot of money, do you still have a scarcity mindset? Well, first, I'll say that I didn't even just keep those teas in my fridge, I also kept them under my bed. And like, (laughs) and like, I'm not kidding, like in tote bags that were like (laughs) in my closet. At one point, no lie, I had about 37 bottles of tea. Oh my God. At one point, 37 bottles of tea. At the time, it did not occur to me that something might be going on or that this was a reflection of a scarcity mindset. Luckily, I was in therapy during that time, both individually and group therapy. One of the things that came up in therapy was the fact that my roommate and I had kind of gotten into a little tiff about all this tea in the room. And the fact that she was having trouble sometimes sleeping at night because our beds were on these like metal things that moved around a little bit. And when I would move around in my bed at night, sometimes it would jostle the bottles of tea under my bed. (laughs) (laughs) And all of a sudden she would be woken up with just like this clink, 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 all the tea like it. And I, and we had gotten into a little tough about it where I knew I was wrong. And so it wasn't much of a tiff because I was like, yeah, you're right. I'll I'll do something about it. But I was annoyed by the request, even though I totally expected that it was coming because I kind of knew it was ridiculous. I think I was just like, I don't know, like seeing how much I could get away with. I'm not sure, but I, I knew it was ridiculous. And I was talking to my therapist about it. And my therapist was like, what do you think will happen if you pass the tea in the dining area and you don't buy one? And I said, I think that when I really want one or one of those days when I'm like, you know, all I want is to go back to my room and have a tea and watch whatever's on TV or something like that. And it just won't be there. He essentially was like, have you ever walked past the case and had there be no tea in there? And I was like, well, no. And he said, then why are you afraid that there won't be tea? And I had to think about it. And it was just like, oh, because growing up, if there was a special treat or anything in the house and you didn't get it fast enough, you just Mm -hmm. missed it. Because if my brother got there first, it was gone. Nobody was going to get any. Like if he got there first, it was over. You couldn't have anything special. You couldn't say like, hey, I bought this or hey, like 
you know, I'm going to have this later, please nobody touch this because you would get mocked for asking people not to touch something of yours and then they would anyway. And then you'd be mad and then, you know, my mom would be like, well, you should have never put it in there. You knew how you know how he is or you know how she is, you know how this works. And so I just didn't have any control. Like there was just nothing that was ever mine. And like, I, it was impossible to have like a special treat. And I got in the mindset of not even trying so that I didn't get disappointed. And then I'm at college and I'm by myself and I've got this little refrigerator and nobody's going to touch anything in my refrigerator. And it's like each bottle of tea represented essentially each time that I wanted something special and wasn't able to have that for myself. And that's kind of the story of my life. You know, I didn't really have birthday parties because my birthday was too close to Christmas. And also my sister's birthday was two days before mine. And she was born six years after me. So she was the baby and I was the older kid, you know. And so I wasn't used to being able to have anything special that was just for me. And scarcity mindset, it is like, it feeds on that. It feeds on a youth made up of lack. So that's sort of how that played out. And as an adult in the position that I'm in now, (laughs) the thing about getting more money and being around people with more money is that you realize that scarcity mindset is not only not reality, like it's not a real thing. It is also one of the ways that people who have the most, make the most and hoard the most, keep people who don't have enough in a place of feeling like they need to be in competition mm. for enough instead of the reality that everybody is entitled, in my opinion, um, to enough at the very, very least. Everybody is entitled to enough. And if everybody had enough, the only way that that would truly hurt any part of our economy is that the people who make a lot of money from convincing people that they can never have enough would be most likely out of business, which doesn't sound like a bad idea to me. Did you know that around 29,000 plastic or aluminium Nespresso pods are sent to landfill every minute? But with Grind's compostable Nespresso pods, you don't have to worry about what your caffeine habit might be doing to the environment. Their pods are made entirely from bioplastic, and when composted, they'll break down in a matter of weeks. To enjoy the taste of cafe-quality coffee in the comfort of your own home, head to www.grind.co.uk forward slash ingoodcompany now and use the code ingoodcompany at checkout to get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's coffee pod, whole bean or ground coffee subscriptions. And now, back to the show. The thing is, you seem so comfortable talking openly about money in the past, you know, having given hard numbers. Why do you think it's so hard to talk openly about money the way you and I are doing now? I think it's hard to talk about money openly because of two reasons. And this is a perfected system. You have to understand, like, people have been entrenched and encouraging of this system for as long as any of us have been alive, since our grandparents' grandparents have been alive in most cases. And the way it's set up, essentially, is that people with money talk about money. They talk about it all the time, just with each other. (laughs) 
And then because they set the rules for culture, because everybody is supposed to be aspiring to their station or their class or whatever, the rule that they set is, you know, it's actually really very rude to talk about, Mm -hmm. but it's only rude for the people who don't have it. And you have to think, okay, why is it rude for people who don't have a lot of money to talk about money? Why would we want them to believe that? Easy, because if they don't talk about money, then they won't be able to finally get on the same page enough to go, you know what? Something's not right here. Yeah. Like something is not okay. When people start talking about money, first of all, especially in companies, they start in a lot of cases demanding better pay for their coworkers. Exactly. I was about to give the example of how a lot of, especially when it comes to kind of like low wage service work, if you're working like a restaurant or something like that, there's often something which is illegal in pretty much most employment contracts where employees are directed to not discuss their paychecks or discuss their pay mm-hmm. rates with each other. Yeah. It's in so many contracts and in so many places it's illegal. But often workers don't know that and they just go along with it. But the reason for that is so that people don't start figuring out inequalities. Putting the pieces together. Exactly. It's so people don't start wondering. I had a conversation at a one of the last jobs I had, the last nine to five I had, where you know, I was making $100,000 a year to write one essay a week, <laughs> literally. Sounds like a pretty good deal. It was a good deal. I hated the place, though. See, that's, that's, <laughs> this is also a thing that I've learned about me, is that a great paycheck won't keep me around. Mm. Environment, community, the way people speak to each other, the work we do... That's the kind of stuff that will keep me at a job. And because nobody cares about that, I just choose to opt out for now because I can't. I have the privilege right now to opt out of the nine to five situation. And I have because those environments are usually toxic in a way that nobody talks about, nobody recognizes, and nobody's willing to fix. So they can't have me, can't afford me (laughs) at this point (laughs) because it costs more than money. But I was at this position making this amount of money And some of the young women I was working with at this place, there were about three young women. We were staying after hours. We were just like a few of us there working on something. And the cleaning service that cleaned the office started coming through uh, because, you know, it was their time to clean up, empty the baskets, like all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the women who I was speaking to said that, oh, they're here let me put this stuff away. She had all these samples and things from designers and she started putting them in the bottom, in her bottom drawer of her seat. So, you know, my first thought was, you know, "Hmm, that's kind of weird. But then I was like, oh, maybe she's putting them away because they clean off the tops of our desks too. And she wants to get the top of her desk cleaned off. So I said something to her like, oh, maybe I'll put my stuff away so they can clean the top of my desk. I didn't even think about doing that. And she was like, I don't care about them cleaning my desk. I don't want them to take any of my stuff. And I was like looking at her and I was like, didn't they send you all that stuff for free? (laughs) And she was like, well, yeah, but it's mine. I was like, what makes you think those women want any of this stuff or that they would take this stuff from you? 
And we ended up getting into a pretty heated conversation where essentially at the end of it, I had to look at this person, this person who was so sure that people were coming for her and coming for her things. And I just looked at her and I said, do you think you work harder than them because you make more money than them? Is that what you think? Do you think what they're doing right now is less skilled than you sitting here taking photos of these products and quickly writing up how it feels on your face? Do you think that is harder than what they're doing? Do you think it makes them a worse person because they're making less money than you? That making less money than you makes them a thief? And she told me that I was putting words in her mouth and that I was trying to portray her a certain way that wasn't accurate. Then I asked her to explain to me what was accurate then. Explain to me what you were thinking. Explain to me what was happening here because what I'm getting is something that makes me really sad and really angry. And maybe it's not real. Maybe I'm making it up. But if that's the case, can you explain to me what I'm making up and what you meant differently when you started moving your free samples of high-end products into your bottom drawer so that the staff who cleans this place up after you every day won't steal your precious free things? And then she didn't have an answer and I left. Because I can't deal with things like that. That's the hard part of class transition that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Is if you are raised in an environment of lack with never really having what is enough to truly be okay, with having to live with the anxiety, the fear, and the anger of never truly being okay. And then suddenly you're getting paid double what your mom was paid while she was raising four kids by herself and you are doing an amount of work that is high quality but low frequency how could you not realize that how hard a person works how hard a job is on their mind body and soul is in no way equivalent to how much money they make from that job yeah and i think what you said about class transition Another thing that people don't realise is that people will assume things or assume that you have a similar mentality to them. So this colleague of yours might have looked at you, Ashley Seaford, big name writer. She knows you're making a good amount of money. And so she assumes that you see the world and class and money and work in the same way that she does. Yep. And that can be really difficult to deal with. To navigate. It's very difficult to deal with and to navigate. But I made it a point when I left my first job in media that I would never again have a job where I did not speak with my coworkers about money or that I hid my financial reality at my job from my coworkers. I would rather be in solidarity with my coworkers. I want them to know what's going on. And I don't like coming into places where I am being paid astronomically more than anybody else simply because of who I am. That doesn't feel right to me. If you can afford to pay me this much, there's no reason there should be somebody here who has to write five posts a day who's making less than half of what I'm making. Why? 
That's ridiculous. Like, I understand that I'm a good writer, a great writer, even when I'm really (laughs) in my zone, (laughs) you know, like, I know that that's true. And I know that there is a certain amount of quality that can be damn near guaranteed when you're working with Ashley C. Ford. I like that about myself. I'm into that. But I would be lying if I said that at any given moment, what most deeply compromises my ability to love what I do isn't the fact that I know so many people who do this thing well, very well, and in some cases, even better than me, who will never see the amount of money that I've seen from this. I know the reasons why that is. Some of them are valid and some of them are not. (laughs) And the ones that are not, I feel like it's my responsibility to speak on that and to do something about that. Otherwise, I'm just what? another person in the system doing what I can to like get ahead and not really caring about anybody else. That's not me. That's just, that's not even something I, I wouldn't feel right. I wouldn't feel right. So yeah, I'm going to keep talking about it. I want to change topics slightly. I'm still talking about money, but quite specifically, I want to talk about an article that you wrote a couple of years ago for Refinery29 that went viral So much so that I wrote about it in my book. It's about women being the breadwinners in their relationships. And when Mm. I say in their relationships, I mean heterosexual women in relationships with men. And how conflicted a lot of those women often felt about it. And some of the emotions they talked about, which included kind of embarrassment, resentment, you know, feeling less attracted to their spouses, dealing with their partners, feeling emasculated, I remember when you when you posted this article because it went absolutely viral. And I even saw you tweet something a couple of weeks or a couple of months ago being like, oh, this article is doing the rounds again. Like, it's really kind of out there in the ether. And I'd love you to just kind of share a little bit of what the response was like to the article, both at the time and since, because... I remember there being a lot of outrage and women saying stuff like, yeah. could, could never be me. But I don't actually recall if they were pushing back on the idea of being the breadwinner or the idea of feeling uncomfortable about that fact. So could you just tell me a little bit about that? There was a little bit of both, but I would say it leaned in the direction of people being upset at the idea that women would be conflicted about being a breadwinner in this kind of relationship dynamic. And to be fair, a lot of that comes from the fact that when the article came out, at first it was like people were just reacting to the headline and I'm like, oh, that happens. But that's fine. That works itself out because anybody who actually reads the article will be like, ah, that's not (laughs) that's not really what it said. Like you're taking this to a different place. And and so mm, just not valid. And we move on. But CNBC did a small write up. Like they tried to summarize my article, my researched like article in a very small space and just kind of like butchered the message a bit. And their headline was even worse than the original headline on the piece. And so then people just started reacting to that headline. What's interesting or what really made me 
feel even as all that was happening and it was like kind of sad that I was like please just read the article <laughs> like it doesn't have to be like this friends you know like, request. <laughs> it's a bare minimum request but you know I've been on the internet a long time I know what to expect because once you read the piece you understand that the complicated feelings don't come from the fact that they make the money the complicated feelings come from the fact that even when they do make the money, in a lot of cases, their lives, as far as the emotional household and physical labor that they're still expected to engage in, does not decrease. So even right. though these women were the breadwinners in a lot of cases, there were all sorts of reasons why they felt conflicted. I found in the research that I did and in the interviews that I did for that piece, that really what would make a woman most conflicted about being the breadwinner was if it was something that she did not choose, like it was supposed to be temporary mm -hmm. and it continued and she did not like the job she had to keep in order to be the breadwinner or in order to remain the breadwinner in the family. That's when they felt conflicted about being the breadwinner most often. Second most often were the women who said that, yes, I'm the breadwinner, but I'm also still the primary parent who gets Oof. phone calls and has to regulate everything about my child's schedule. I'm also still the person who does the laundry and does the cooking and does this and does that. It's like, so yeah, I'm the breadwinner, but I also still have all of these womanly slash wifely duties that my partner, or in this case, husband, won't touch or won't do. So not only is he making less money and like also possibly like working less hours, he's not trading in that time <laughs> to like help me take care of our kids or help me take care of our home. So the reasons why women were conflicted when they were breadwinners were never for the most part, like I'm conflicted because I just feel like the man should make more money. Even people who said they started out feeling that way, eventually realized that like, oh, it doesn't matter. And this works much better for my family or this works much better for our dynamic or this works much better for us financially, like in any situation. The conflict came from how they were treated while being breadwinners. One of the things that you shared in the article was that you yourself have been the breadwinner in your own relationship for yes. several years now, I guess. And yes. I'd love to know, I mean, besides just generally having, you know, like a healthy relationship and having chosen like an amazing partner, like I've heard you speak about your partner a lot and he sounds brilliant. How do you navigate that particular dynamic in a healthy way that perhaps other women who are in the same position can learn from? Well, he had to go to therapy too. <laughs> we both had to be in therapy a little bit. And I mean, for all like our own reasons, like we both have our personal, you know, like journey, even as we build this life together. But yeah, if I'm being perfectly honest, like the hangups that I had about it or in any situation, we're all just like, well, I don't want him to feel emasculated. And mm -hmm. I don't want my friends and family to feel like I'm being taken advantage of. But I still want to do what I want to do. <laughs> and I still want to have the life that I want to have. And that included my husband being a person 
who writes and works from home with me. That's what I wanted and I could have it. So the reasons to not have it just weren't adding up for me. They weren't making sense. And I try to be a person who lives in reality. I try to be a person who does not fall into, you know, delusion. And the truth of the matter is, it's like, first of all, I don't live in Brooklyn anymore. I live in Indianapolis, Indiana now. The amount of money that I make from my work is more than enough to maintain a beautiful, mostly quiet, lovely life surrounded by people who I love. If I hated my work, if I felt like, oh my God, life would be so much better if I just had more money, more money. Life would be so much better if we just had like a second income or something like that. If I felt that way, then maybe it would be a problem then. I think most people in most financial situations can't fathom not being in a two income household. Mm. I mean, our society isn't set up for that, to be honest. It's not set up for that at all. So it's a survivability measure. It's a building measure when you're trying to build, when you're trying to make things happen, especially when you have kids, it could very well not make sense. But for my life and the life I have, the life I'm trying to lead, it makes perfect sense. And every time he talks about, you know, oh, and the pandemic's over, like, I, I think maybe I should go looking for it. I'm like, okay. Like, it's like, okay. Like, if he wants to, it's not like I'm t- I tell my husband he can't work. <laughs> if he <laughs> wants to, he can go get a job or do something in that capacity, get that regular nine to five or whatever, like whenever he wants. And I would support the shit out of that if that's what he wants. But I would just, for now... I know personally, I like having him home. I like what it provides me (laughs) to have him home. And if it was taking away from me in a way that was in any way unbearable, or if I felt an inkling of being taken advantage of or anything like that, like he would have to go get his ass a job. But that's just not the way our lives are. Our lives work better. My life definitely works better when he's around and when we're together. And that might not always be true. It could be that, you know, like next year, two years, whatever, he's like, no, I really want to go do this thing. And it's outside the house and I'm going to be gone. And it's like, great, we will rearrange and we'll make that work because that's, you know, I get to do what I want to do. So I want him to be able to do what he wants to do too. But Mm. it's not a great psychic cost for me Mm. to have my husband at home. So far, it just makes everything better. That sounds great. (laughs) Is this where you thought you'd be financially at this point in your life, say 10 years ago? No. (laughs) No. You immediately started laughing. (laughs) I've touched on something. (laughs) No. I thought I would have nothing, really. I'm going to be honest. Like, I really didn't expect to have anything. I thought that I would always have enough money to be able to find a place to rent. That's what I thought. I will make sure that I always am able to rent a home. I prefer renting houses to apartments, but you you get what you can. You do what you can. I spent most of my life practicing not 
wanting. I thought it was the wanting that hurt me. I thought wanting brought you disappointment. That desire brought you disappointment. And if you could just want as little as possible, desire as little as possible, then you'll be okay because you can't be disappointed. Nothing can disappoint you if you've decided that you don't even really want those things or or want anything really. You have everything you need, right? And I did that for so long that to be perfectly honest, when I started to make money that allowed me to move a little differently in terms of like the quality of what I could afford, the amount of what I could afford, the fact that if I decided that I needed new jeans or a new top, I could just go get new jeans or a new top because I decided that I really needed or wanted them. And I would be paralyzed by that freedom, just paralyzed by it. I would sit there and I would think, you can't spend this because what if you spend it and then you need it later? I didn't have any practice giving myself what I want or allowing myself to like have what I want. And I had to relearn all of that (laughs) just to like be okay, just to be a person who's like, hey, my book hit the New York Times bestseller list. And I would like to buy myself a dress to celebrate. Like, where am I going to wear it to? We're in a pair. It doesn't matter. (laughs) I love the dress. I've been looking at the dress for months and I have this celebratory moment and I'm going to buy myself a dress. And I did And that was the biggest thing I've ever given myself Mm. was a dress (laughs) because this happened and it was finally felt like a big enough deal that I could get myself something that I wanted, even though I could have gotten it for myself at any point down the line. That's the crucial bit. It's giving yourself permission to splurge, to treat yourself and to be, I don't know, to not always spend out of necessity but to spend for pleasure and joy as well and to spend just because you can and to not... I'm glad it was a dress that you can't necessarily wear during a pandemic. Like, that's <laughs> that's the point. A it new is. lawnmower wouldn't have had the same kind of kit to wear unless you were gardening. Would not I not have. <laughs> I mean, I do like gardening. And even then, it would not have had the same kick. You're absolutely right. And I think everybody deserves that. The problem is, is that we tell people things like, is that person really homeless? They have a, a cell phone. Oh, <laughs> and it's oh, like, a cell phone. phone is not a house. You can't trade in a cell phone for rent. And also, everybody deserves to have something nice that they just want. That's mm-hmm. just for them. And I don't think, like, right now I'm in a place of telling myself, like, I have to earn it. But I'm going to come out of that. Because I don't believe that it's true that everybody has to earn every nice thing they have. I think by our existence, by the truth of our existence, we are worthy of love, we are worthy of beauty, and we are worthy of good in this life. And I think that the only reason that we tell people you have to earn it is because that benefits the richest among us. Because let me tell you, those people don't, they made all that money so their kids would never have to have jobs and never have to worry about how to get what they want. So why is it so important for us to have to do that, right? Because it benefits them. It benefits them. 
And that would imply that someone like Jeff Bezos, who is worth God knows how much at this stage, you know, billions and billions, that would imply that he has earned all that money somehow. And that the workers working in his warehouses who have paid, again, God knows what, I I really don't know what they're paid, but not very much, that they are in that position because they haven't worked hard enough. And it's like, well, I don't see them going on a jaunt to space. You know what I'm saying? And then that's the thing that the rich do. I used to think that the rich really tried to create this idea that they were so busy and always working because otherwise people would storm the gates of their house because it's like, how do you have this much money and do nothing? You know what I mean? Like how? Like that's not fair. Like it would blow people's minds how little these people actually like do on a daily basis. And I think about that because I used to think that that was just like a narrative that the rich had created around themselves so that nobody's like, but you don't do anything. How are you a billionaire? But now I've learned that it's actually something, it's a little bit of both. It's not just that the rich people create this narrative. It's also that like people want that narrative because it gives them a sense of control that doesn't actually exist. People are always telling me how busy I am. They're always like, oh, I know you're just so busy. I know that you just have this and that and you're so busy. And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm picky. I'm not busy. I'm picky about what I do. And to me, my time is always mine. And so when somebody wants some of my time or they want to share time with me, I should be really picky about like how I'm spending this time that I'll I'll never get back. I can't buy it back. I can't wish it back. (laughs) I can't go out and catch some more (laughs) and, and have it back. It's like the time I have is all the time I have. So when I do something, it's because I want to do it. I want to be there. I want to have this conversation with this person right now. And if I don't want to, then I just don't do it. And I think maybe like in your head, you have to tell yourself like, oh, well, she's very busy. But it could be a lot of things. It could just be like the timing's not right. It could just be like, I'm not really feeling having that conversation right now. It could also be that like, I just have a better way to spend my time that day, a day that gives me more or feeds me more. Mm. We create this culture of busyness around people who have a lot of money and the busyness is feigned. It's feigned. When you can call every lunch a business lunch, every breakfast a business breakfast, when you look at your calendar and see that you're booked from 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. and to you, you think, okay, that means I'm earning my money. That's sad. That's really sad to me. People feel like they have to be busy to earn what they have. You don't. You just have to be responsible for whatever power comes along with what you have. That's it. I couldn't agree more. And that also makes me feel really privileged that you managed to make time to speak to me today for the podcast. This has been just such a valuable conversation and one that I know I will think about for months to come. So Ashley, thank you so much for making the time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. reminder that you can get 25% off your first three orders of Grind's at-home coffee pod, whole or ground coffee subscriptions by heading to www.grind.co.uk forward slash ingoodcompany and using the code ingoodcompany at checkout. Then espresso compatible coffee pods are fully compostable, 
making them the more sustainable option for coffee lovers everywhere.